Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Rick Wagner here, getting it right here in western Colorado and eastern Utah on 92.7 FM, 1100 AM. That's on KNZZ. KGLN's 980 and 101.3. We're, of course, also on the Internet, even as we speak, and uh, our podcasts are out there, which, by the way, I discovered something kind of cool this weekend. Uh, it wasn't this weekend. It was this week. Uh, when I, I just ask, I have one of those uh, Amazon devices, the Alexa, and in the house, and because I like to ask it the weather 30 times a day when I'm home. And so I asked it and said, hey, play the Rick Wagner podcast. I thought, why not? It'll find it. Start playing it right away. Says, you know, the Rick Wagner podcast on Amazon um, Music and Podcast. I was like, wow. Of course, I had to turn it off because I don't like listening to myself. But uh, so that's easy. So you can find us right on our webpage at uh, the uh, rickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com if you want to come from a different direction. And you can listen to them right there. You can also listen to Victor Davis Hanson three times a week uh, podcast right from our page, too, if you want to. So that was pretty cool. And, uh, well, it was uh, kind of a mixed week here. We had uh, local elections here where I'm at, and they did not go well, and they should have. And that's something I'll probably talk about, because I think it, it kind of comes across to everybody. But there was so much news, and you guys wrote me some of this stuff that uh, that you'd noticed, that some of which I'd noticed as well, but I always appreciate getting it. And uh, you can write me, by the way. I just forget to say this. Grab me at Rick Wagner, just one word, Rick Wagner at mail.com. And <laughs> we had some most ridiculous things this week. Uh, the headlines, and I posted these headlines on the website because they, you know, and, and they link to the, they link to the stories. But, uh, here, here's, here's something from Biden. Uh, transgender Americans shape our nation's soul. Biden issues another pro, uh, transgender proclamation. I don't have anything to say on that. Uh, okay. How, how does that, how, how is, what? <laughs> I mean, it isn't just his ramblings, I have to say, but there was something I wanted to bring up because I didn't want to forget about it. This is a quote in a story that I'd found that had went back and, uh, this is something Rush Limbaugh said a couple of years ago. And I thought it really resonated today. And it said that, uh, Rush Limbaugh warned us that Democrats were done with elections. He said they no longer believe they should have to persuade anybody to agree with them. There's no question they resent the electoral process. As usual with Rush, I found that so right on, spot on, as the Brits like to say, uh, that there it is. I mean, they don't think they should have to convince you anymore. The electoral process to them is an unnecessary detour from their agenda. And having to convince you what's good for you when they know already is just something they don't think they should have to do. And they resent it. And because they resent it and don't think it should be necessary, they have no respect for it. And since they have no respect for the electoral process, uh, they'll do what they want to with it. Change it. Try and get rid of it. Throw the electoral college in the dumpster. Uh, you know, the one man, one vote they used to love so much. I mean, it's, you know, one man, maybe one mailbox, one vote. How about that? kind of stuff it's all they don't care about the process anymore i mean they have no no concern for it uh because they've arrived at the conclusion that we don't care about it anymore and that anything that you answer back to say well what about this or what about that the answer is always simple it's racist homophobic uh whatever you might might be and because of that i'm going to label it those things even though most of us can't figure out how you get that label on it 
They're going to label it that. And since I've labeled it that way, that means anything I do by any means necessary to get rid of that or change it is okay. So it's just a, another link in that chain, right? And what it, what it ends up with is, uh, where is this story that I, I thought was, uh, oh yeah. Michigan college professor, college professor, of course, suspended for saying conservative campus speakers should be killed. Now, I'm glad something happened, but does suspension seem like really a, you know, that should that be it? Should he just go sit in the corner for an hour and think about what he said and then come back and start teaching the kids again? I guess that's how that works. This is his quote, uh, this Michigan college professor. says, I think it is far more admirable to kill a racist, homophobic, or transphobic speaker than it is to shout them down. All right. This is a man who likes to say what he thinks. you got to give him that. He wants to say what he thinks, and he'll just go sit and think about that. Mr. You go home and on paid leave and spend a couple of days laying in the hammock outside, and when you come back, boy, I bet you'll be sorry. And you certainly won't teach these kind of views to the classes at Michigan that regular people have saved their whole lives to be able to send their kids to this college because they don't have a million dollars. And they are trying to better their kids' lives, and they mistakenly send them to you. And you just keep going, keep doing that, that stuff you do, my friend. It's almost unbelievable. Well, it would have been unbelievable in the past, but today it is not. So, elections. We're just constantly immersed in elections. Here we had a municipal election that uh, I frankly got about uh, half of what happened completely wrong. And I feel I should own up to that. I we have we have a rec we had a rec center on the ballot here that I thought was a terrible idea, but I I knew that it, it's been on the ballot a couple of times before, and the same problems: way too much money, way too much taxing, way too ornate, uh, and a, a dra- will eventually be a drag on the on the tax revenues. But I also knew that people want a rec center. The problem is twofold: one, when you put these things out there. You lead people to believe that somehow, since the city and government's paying for it, it'll be some sort of free thing, like the library, right? You just walk in, maybe get a pass, uh, float around, do this, that, the other thing. That's not going to be the way it is. You're going to pay more money in taxes, and if the thing starts going south, they're going to divert tax dollars from one type of service to this. So we'll see how that goes. You're going to, uh, after that, you're going to pay a fee that I'm going to guess is going to be really close, if not the same, as existing gyms with a lot of the same kind of accoutrements. And you know, will they be brand new? No. Will they cost $70 million? No. And you know why? Because someone in private industry will be able to build that same thing for a lot less than what they're doing. That's why I didn't like the idea. And it's also another shady way to get a tax increase. And most of the time on these tax increases, if you look at the estimates for these buildings, uh, they're high, like way high. And so they collect more taxes than they probably anticipate spending building the thing, which will create some kind of, you know, what they used to call a slush funds or something. Now, the only good thing about that, and it's not actually a good thing, is that because they'll be so terrifically inefficient in building this, and who knows, maybe where I'm at, we're actually big enough now to have some graft involved instead of just incompetence. Hard to say. But in any rate, it will end up costing more than even they think it is. And so they're not going to keep as much money in their back pocket. 
And if you went out and hired somebody and watched your dollars and wanted to build the same thing, you would probably spend about 65 to 70% of what will be spent on this. That's why I didn't like it. Also, instead of a recreation center, which is supposed to be in a funded project by government, something that essentially provides services that the community wants that are not readily available uh, in private industry. This will not be anything like that. It will duplicate the services available in private industry and essentially be in competition with them by using their tax dollars to build the thing and become competitive with the private industry. That's what happens with these things. And everything that will be done there will be more expensive than private industry does. The people that work in there are not going to be the guys at the front desk at your gym. They're going to be city employees, and they're going to be in that framework, which is going to pay them a lot more to do the same thing that someone at a privately owned gymnasium or a franchise pays their people to do. Not because it's any harder, but because it's government. When you get involved in that, nothing you do will be that inexpensive. As far as the idea of a restaurant, I've said this many times, provide something that gymnasiums that are in a private world don't want to do too much of because it, it, they don't bring any dollars in, you know, big empty spaces, basketball courts, meeting rooms, uh, places to, that you can rent out to someone to do yoga classes, stuff like that. Um, those are the kinds of things that even cities that are pretty liberal will have. This will be just another big gym owned by the city, financed by taxes in comp- competition with regular folks. Oh, that's right, everybody. I'm back. I am a soldier of fortune. Uh, Dame Fortune has uh, been good to me in many ways, and so uh, I do appreciate that. Uh, as a paladin, I think that sounds pretty cool, frankly, a uh, Avenger, the uh, King's Champion. There's very different ways of uh, the paladin. But uh, So, anyway, uh, for those of you on the podcast who didn't hear it, I, once again, I played the uh, theme from the Have Gun Will Travel episode from the 60s. Just to make myself feel like I'm riding across the prairie, probably on a black horse, maybe with a white blaze. Uh, for some reason unknown, I'm wearing black traveling clothes, which is uh, apparently what Paladin wore. Uh, why you wear black clothes in a desert environment or a high desert environment, which he appears to be in a lot, uh, in the dust? And that's your traveling clothes. I'm not sure. It looks pretty cool, though. That might be the whole thing. Some people are willing to sacrifice comfort for style. So there you have it. Anyway, we're back. Uh, so what are we going to do, you think, here going forward? Now, I'm not going to talk any, by the way, more about the t- the Trump thing very much. Uh, geez, you guys are just beat to death with it on uh, cable news and things like that. Although I do have to agree, I, I read something and put it up on our website here at the Rick Wagner Show from Victor Davis Hanson, you know, his, his essential point i think is true and it's it's the idea that prosecutors want trump to get enough empathy get the base riled up and empathy for this ridiculous prosecution to get him to win the nomination and then they'll really jump on him or right towards the nomination uh with uh, probably one or two more of these uh, investigations going out here and then they'll try and put a gag order on him at some point or who knows? I mean, the the rule book is out the window with these dudes. But, yeah, I think that they believe that they can damage Trump enough later on that if they can give him the nomination, then they can beat him down and he'll be able to 
he won't be able to beat Joe, who at this point will think he's on a ride at Disney World uh, when he's uh, running for election. And that may be where he runs from. I mean, the basement was kind of boring. I mean, maybe they put him running around a theme park and uh, he can occasionally do little interviews. There's a lot of ice cream there. He's uh, very excited about that. So that'll kind of give him that energy. Uh, so, you know, who knows? But, I mean, this guy is very weak as a candidate. And they need to get somebody they think that they can beat on. Now, can they beat him up? I don't think so. I think Trump is one of these just amazing individuals that can absorb punishment and keep standing right there and just fight back. So I don't think they can they can beat him up, but I think they believe that they can so tie him up that he cannot effectively campaign, get a message out, tar his name enough uh, through media and then squelch the media down on anybody that disagrees with that or tries to bring you know out how ridiculous all this is and how thin these charges are and they don't really even exist as crimes they figure they can tune that down tune their stuff up and damaging enough that that eight or nine percent in the middle of america now that they think and may be true will not want him as president or a significant portion of it won't you know a lot of what the democrats believe I don't think this is too far off, is that there's, there's a divided country out there. Now, that if you listen to them publicly, it's going to be like there's only 25 to 30 percent of these crazy deplorables out there that support Trump. You know, the the people that are full of isms and phobes and all that kind of stuff that uh, the the supremacists, uh, you know, you, you just name the uh, sort of uh, tarnishing word and that's who they are. But really that the majority of the country is just against a person like this. You know, I mean, how could they be for it? And there are still individuals damaged out there by his presidency, just mentally. Chris Hayes, who's one of the, and you won't know who this is, he's one of the hosts on MSNBC. And he says that he is still damaged and traumatized by the Trump presidency. So they just think that there's lots of people out there like that. They're just too damaged to even go forward. And the idea of another Trump presidency, oh, no. Well, behind closed doors, they don't believe that. They believe that the race is a lot closer than that. Maybe even, who knows, some of them may think that Trump might be leading. In reality, for them anyway, and I think this is close to the truth, is that they've so hardened the sides, right? We have, we're so dug in on our positions that there's like 46 percent that aren't going to change their vote on either side i mean they could uh freeze dry joe into a glass box and parade him around and he probably would still get 40 some percent of the vote i mean we elected fetterman i mean didn't say we but pennsylvania elected fetterman (laughs) i mean you know what kind of line in the sand are we looking at? They also, as I recall, I think, in, I think it was in Pennsylvania, they elected someone that had passed away before the election. But, you know, they don't want to, uh, you know, they want to deny anybody. As I've said before, what we do know about the Democrats is they refuse to be dentists, you know, in the sense, I don't mean dentists, but dentists in the sense that they discriminate against the dead. Uh, just because you've passed on to the next life does not mean you should be denied the vote to hear. I mean, you put some time in here, you should still be able to vote. And just because you've passed on to that, that next life, uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to hold political office, so long as you're a Democrat. And so, you know, they've have, it's a big tent, folks. It's a big tent. It's a tent that is so big that it actually stretches in to the next world. Goes all the way in 
just in our, from our world into the next. And so they really do have a big tent. So when they say that, I wonder if that's what they mean. But, uh, I mean, they'd like to put us all in a tent. <laughs> I think we'd all be in tents and then there'd be just a big flat area someplace outside of Reno, maybe. And we'd live in those tents and there'd be, a, you know, they just fence that in so we couldn't get out and spread misinformation, you know, that kind of stuff and uh, hate speech. And we, we just live there and, you know, who knows what kind of food would be provided. I'm guessing it wouldn't be a very varied diet, but anyway, uh, yeah, so they're, they're, they're very open on that. But no, I think that they, they really believe that they can get that, you know, that middle part, right? That eight, nine percent right in there, right? Between the two pieces. People just either are hopelessly lost, completely unhinged, pay no attention, don't inform themselves, or just are perpetually undecided in their entire lives. That they can, if not push them towards Joe directly, push them away from Trump. Because a lot of these people are going to be low-information voters. Now, most of the low-information voters are progressives, as we know that. But these, a lot, some of these people may be, too. And they, they may be perfectly fine people. And if they had the, the correct information, would probably make a better decision. But they just don't. Maybe they're busy. Maybe they have other issues, things going on. So they're very susceptible to this sort of relentless drumbeat from the left. Because it is relentless. This is one of the problems that we have as Republicans is... We figure that we can go do something and then fix the problem and go home and, you know, do our own thing. No, that's not so fast. Uh, progressives believe that they go and they never come home. It becomes their job. And there's enough money out there from various groups to make it sort of into a job. You know, you can find transportation to go protest in another state. You can fog into these uh, state houses that you don't like and occupy them and go crazy and Never get charged with anything, unlike, say, January 6th people. And uh, so there's there's kind of a cottage industry there. I mean, a lot of people, you know, uh, when they were in college and so forth, would maybe go out and party and, and do things maybe they shouldn't, they shouldn't do. Uh, but, you know, now you can just uh, get on a bus provided probably by some organization and go to another capital and storm in and throw things and, you know, threaten people, scream at them in their faces, shake their fists at them, maybe, you know, even give them a little shove here and there, and then just go on about your business because it'll all be okay. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the new thing. So I think that they can, that they feel like they can radicalize that base enough and then have this constant loud beating on the drum about Trump and then use their social media power and their power over the, the media itself to squeeze down any information that you might think w- would have something to do with Biden. You know, you don't need to know. You, you, you'll find out. You know, it's a little bit like the uh, couple of the bills. Remember Nancy Pelosi said, well, we'll have to pass it before we can find out what's in it. Man, that is pretty interesting, isn't it? But, but we can see what's going on. I think that, uh, there was some study that I read out there. Let me see if I can find it while I'm talking to it. Uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, the big three networks spent 658 minutes on Trump uh, over this last, I'm assuming that's probably this last month, and uh, or maybe this week, probably this, uh, and zero seconds on the Biden family. Well, see, when you have that kind of uh, power, uh, what do you what do you need the truth for? <laughs> How's that going to get out to anybody? <laughs> you know, a couple of guys on the street might be talking about it, but, you know, how do you get it out? 
It's very difficult for us to get any information out. I'm I just not exactly sure how we fight that in the short term. We've got to take a little longer view. And I go back to what I've said before, is that our, we are in a problem because we don't do machine politics very well. Because it requires a lot of organization and people who live outrage and uh, protest uh, for a living. Now, that may not be the people that are planning all of it, but that's sort of their shock troops. It's difficult for us to turn people out to meetings to show up and speak and do this stuff. They've got to be pretty worked up, whereas the left can turn people out like that on a dime because they live to complain. All right, thanks, folks. We're coming around the bottom of the hour here. Once again, like I say every time, I appreciate your hanging on with us. And I uh, I just I think we'll... We've said enough on the Trump indictment thing. You guys have been inundated with the last two or three days and, well, last two days for foot for sure. And, uh, part of today and tomorrow and the radio. And so I, I, I probably talked about it too much already, but let me just make this uh, observation. Uh, and this is going to be very startling. It's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> I know that's not startling at all, is it? Yeah. You, you have to, Reach that point. Listen, I think if I could use a World War II example, I don't know if it's truly a metaphor. I guess it is. I think we're sort of at the Battle of Midway right here. Not just because of the name Midway, but for those of you that, that are familiar with uh, World War II and war in the Pacific and the naval battle in particular, the Battle of Midway was a naval battle that probably was one of the greatest uh Battles, naval battles in history, right up there with uh, Don John turning the Turks at Lepanto uh, and uh, the Greeks uh, beating the uh, Persians in the seas off of Athens. It was a tactical chess game, and it was where the war in the Pacific in many ways was decided. Now, you could make the argument, and I think it's a good one, that the tide was turned at Guadalcanal on the land war, and the tide was turned at Midway in the naval battle. Uh, the Coral Sea was, a, was extremely important as well. But the reason I say that is because each side has now seen what the other is capable of and knows that without thinking these things through, without being tactically smart, and being able to locate the enemy, well, the opponent, in the case of politics, when we think of people in an enemy, although they certainly treat us that way, without locating them, trying to figure out what they're doing and what their objective is. And, you know, we know what the objective of the left is in many of these things. And you say, well, we see it all the time, Rick, and that's true. But the ultimate objective we understand is probably one of two things. Either it is an idiotic attempt to remold society into an unworkable political situation that will cause the downfall of the country or at least a, a crushing sort of crumbling of it. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Uh, so that it is restructured through that crumbling into a, an almost unrecognizable mess or an even more idiotic, if such a thing is possible, idea that by destroying the foundation of this country, it will lie fallow and somehow radical sort of revolutionaries as they imagine themselves to be, will rebuild it from the ground up in some idyllic, 
kind of utopian way that they have in their fever brains. Now, so we may know that, but there, these, these tactics that are being employed are very interesting. And I mean, they're obvious when they're pulled out and thrown at us, but, uh, that's the case of uh, any weaponry, right? And some of them are extremely surprising. And we've talked about this whole transgender movement. I mean, I can't pretend that I'm not shocked and surprised at how it's being deployed and the effect it seems to be having when it is a relatively, relatively, it is actually an extremely small segment of society. In other words, the, the troops on that side are, are, are very small. Now they're very loud and they appear to be getting sort of, uh, worked up. And we're starting to see that. I don't think the left likes that to be seen right now. You may remember that we talked, we talked about some of their days of rage and things like that for various groups. And this weekend on Sunday, there was supposed to be a transgender day of vengeance. And that was supposed to take place at the Supreme Court. Well, word got on on that. And many of you that follow this in the news know that. And Twitter which is a very disappointing thing with Elon Musk, uh, censored anybody that talked about it. Now, maybe it originally was an idea, and I'm giving the benefit of the doubt here, that if you were going to talk about it at all, they didn't want word to get out, wasn't, weren't going to use Twitter as a way to rally support, so they just locked it down and nobody could talk about it at all. But people like the New York Post and some other places, you know, valid news sources, tried to put it on their Twitter feed and it was shut down as well. And so it, it makes you wonder, Exactly what's going on at Twitter right now. Uh, I, I still think it's much, much better than it was, but it's still an odd response. And if it is a response, once again, with the benefit of the doubt, that they're saying, look, this is a bad thing. We don't want to, we just won't, don't want to be talking about it. I sort of understand that, but I don't necessarily agree with it. At any rate, that's been apparently called off because there was so much blowback about it and this terrible shooting in Nashville. And hopefully we'll get more of this manifesto soon that they try, have tried so hard on the left uh, to stop from being released. And we'll have a much better idea about what's going through this evil lunatic's mind. And I just I, I, I don't understand this, you know, this partial portraying in the media and from the Biden administration too. somehow this woman exemplified the victimization of, of trans people. I mean, no. There's no excuse for murder like this. And there's certainly, if, if there can be degrees of murder, and I guess there, of course, we I don't mean like first and second, but I mean just degrees of moralistic measurement in murder, that the murder of children has got to be pretty near the top of the list. And to even have the slightest bit of sympathy that engages, somebody that engages in that, to try and explain even part of it away, is a stunning Lack of a moral compass. If these people have a compass, there's no pointer in it. <laughs> there's nothing that's uh, set to true moral magnetic north. There's just there's just the dial and no pointer because they have no idea if that's where they're they're thinking they're living. So you sort of watch these 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 various factions, groups, and ideas that are being deployed. And think of them in terms of like a tabletop exercise in a military campaign. These are essentially 
various military divisions in the sense of a political movement, right? Remember our friend von Clausewitz, who wrote on war, that said that uh, war is just a continuation of politics by other means, and of course that works the other way too. Politics are a continuation of warfare through other means. But the tactical approaches are very much the same. And so these various troops and tropes, in other words, ideas and things, to move through this are being deployed just like you would deploy a army or a division or a fleet and constantly probing, trying to find the weak parts of the resistance to it, which would, in these cases, would be us. And if we don't start understanding that and trying to see how these things are deployed and the reasons behind it, and it's difficult to say, and part of that is because so much of what we see in front of these ideas are the people pushing them are essentially drones. And I think drones in the sense of bees <laughs> and in the sense of unmanned aircraft or even, you know, land drones, which I believe uh, you could probably. Uh, yeah, I think you could call it you have land drones. I don't think drones necessarily have to be airborne. But in other words, they're not really particularly smart. And they are not reflective of the true tactical nature. It's, they're like a lot of weaponry, and that is that they're deployed, but you can study them and get an idea why they're being used, but they themselves don't necessarily know why they're being used. Many of them are just hopping on these bandwagons because it gets them attention, because they have a lot of rage against society because of problems that they have and never been fully addressed. And some people just want attention. I mean, that's the other thing you always have to remember is there are certain people out there that want attention more than anything else, and they want attention more than dignity. And if there's ever been a time in history to see that, it's right now. Just look at some of the social media stuff and look at the things that celebrities now reveal about their lives, assuming they're even close to real, and I suspect many of their their relations about what's happened to them in the past and all this is is a exercise in uh, fantastic thinking. But the idea of revealing yourself in a way to get attention, when at its core, lots of time, it makes you look crazy or pathetic, should say something about the dignity. I mean, shame seems to be completely disappeared. And the idea that someone should be ashamed of behavior, if you bring that up, you're just hooted down. Oh, my God, who are you to judge? You know? How dare you shame someone? Well, some people should be ashamed of their behavior, shouldn't they? I mean, and the idea that you don't think people ought to be ashamed of some of their behavior is startlingly crazy and certainly goes against, you know, the way that society controls people's behavior to some extent. But we, we seem to be past that and into that there, there doesn't seem to even be a particular concern about personal dignity. And of course, that's sort of locked up with personal honor where, you know, you're honor-bound to do certain things or you give your word on things. In other words, that you you know you swear that something's going to be done or that you're telling the truth or something. That seems to have also fallen out of the window to its doom. But the idea that personal dignity no, no longer matters to these people, it just doesn't. Uh, they would rather have attention and get their way and in some instances have some sort of celebrity out there, even if it damages what people think about them, on a personal level. And many of them would rather be victims 
than people who have overcome hardship. I remember a long time ago I read, and I wish I could remember who the author was because it was very good, said, you know, there, you can tell a society in terms of how it's headed and its sort of internal makeup by what sort of hero people want to be. And there's really two kinds. There's the conquering hero. That is the person who has overcome things, that has had great challenges and overcome them and become victorious and stands athwart the problem and says, look, no, I've conquered this, you know, and that you can look up to and learn from. But the other kind is the suffering hero, the person who is known for undergoing a tremendous amount of suffering and or, or will tell you that they are in the hope that you essentially, you know, give them compassion, which we should in many instances, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't. There are many people out there that deserve our compassion and a hand up. And, you know, if someone's, you know, been knocked down and injured and can't work or they're just, you know, you have a family member that fell off their deck while they're barbecuing, you know, yeah, they're a victim and they deserve your compassion. <laughs> but what I'm talking about are those that go out and manufacture in many cases their victimhood or who spend all of their time trying to find out some way they're victimized so that they can cry out for attention. And when you see a society that seems to be turning that direction more than the conquering hero, I don't think that makes for a nation, state, republic, society of any real strength, does it? I mean, it certainly doesn't advertise any. It doesn't talk about strength, and essentially it, it talks about at best, that you've somehow survived, which in some cases can be, you know, can be important. Like I said, I don't want to confuse this with people who, the, who have been, you know, the victims of, of things that are out of their control. You know, someone gets attacked on a subway and beaten up. It's not like, well, you should have just overcome that and conquered that. No, I mean, they're, they're, they are, in fact, you know, a hero for what they've had to suffer and manage to survive it. Or if not a hero, at least someone, you know, worthy of our attention and certainly our compassion. Right. What I'm talking about is, like I say, this manufactured victimhood and this constant attention for it, this constant seeking out victim qualities. In other words, you have abandoned the idea that you can be successful in a more traditional way and want to try and get attention and people's concern by being miserable. And crying out. And then, of course, the next step when that happens is, is that be, your situation cannot possibly be the result of your own behavior. It must be the result of someone else. And political actors seize upon this all the time. This is not something that's happened in America this last five years. This has happened probably the last 2,800 years or so, you know, since people were able to express themselves outside of, I'm hungry and I need to work all day to eat, is that you, you can break people down into groups who you can then pit against other by saying, well, you're not very happy and it's this person's fault. And if you give me power, I will make sure this person is punished and they stop oppressing you. And maybe I'll give you some of their stuff. I, of course, will take a lot more of their stuff, but we'll give you a little bit. And that's been going on for a very long time. And of course, that's at its most basic level, what's going on with a lot of people in power today. It's the other group that seems to be overtaking the Democrat Party, and certainly anybody that says they're progressive in most instances, 
and that is this idea that everything is a class struggle. Now, they tried to make things a class struggle, class struggle for a long time, and the class struggle idea really comes from this Marxian idea, right? And Marx gets this class struggle idea and much of his other ideas from other people, which nobody likes to you know mention very much. But the idea that there are competing groups. Now, what the dialectic talks about, and Marx uses the dialectic. People somehow think that he, you know, came up with this. And that is that you have competing groups of classes and the classes, you know, one puts forward one way of doing things, the other puts forward another, and there's a clash. And out of that clash comes uh, a third way, a, a synthesis. Now, his synthesis is essentially, you know, communism, such that he understood it, which, by the way, his understanding of his own theory of how things were going to end up is really not very good. If you if you want to read Das Kapital, don't let somebody hand you the Communist Manifesto. I mean, it's fine to read, but that is that's just a pamphlet, essentially. Das Kapital with uh, Marx and Engels, Frederick Engels, who is really the the engine behind Marx's musing lays it out, and you'll read a lot of it, and if you didn't know it was Marx, per se, you would agree with a lot of it in terms of some of the problems he was seeing. But he didn't understand the solutions at all, and he didn't really see how the problems he was seeing at that time in society were also being in the process of being overcome by forces he couldn't quite grasp. You know, that how capitalism really was working. He just froze it for a moment, picked it apart, there were problems that were existing, and then offered a solution that was childlike, really. Doesn't, doesn't sound like anything that a serious person would come up with. So those class struggles in the very, this dialectic, you know, there's one class, another class, they clash, and then something comes out of that. That goes back to Hegel. And Hegel is an interesting German writer that is almost impossible to read uh, in English. And I don't think that it's because it's badly translated. Now, his idea of the dialectic was just pretty much that, that way. Thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. And that he thought that's the way history moved, right? That's why it's called philosophy of history. And there's there's some, I think, something to that, although it's dressed up in a lot of really obscure thinking. And Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, the other another great German philosopher, wrote what I think is the best critique of anybody <laughs> that you can have, where he said that he thought Hegel was the most absurd waster of paper ever to write in the German language. It's hard to get around that. <laughs> but so but the class struggle thing just wouldn't work for them because in America you can move up in classes. You can change classes. The classes aren't at war with each other. I mean you could move up from the lower class to the middle class and up to the you know the upper classes in terms of economic situation and so forth. We don't have titles of nobility. You're not held in place by who your father was. Sometimes you're held above people because of your who your parents are. I mean you got money and so forth. But we didn't have that kind of class structure. And so it was difficult to freeze people because people still had some mobility in class structure in the United States. We had the middle class, which is the gateway up. And so you have to destroy the middle class if you're going to make things worse and if you're going to gain ultimate control. You can't have that movement through. So they've tried to substitute race and gender or the lack of a specific gender, apparently, for Class. In other words, they're trying to get immutable characteristics. They're trying to say, look, you can't change your ethnicity or your race. And because of that, you'll never be, never be, uh, unoppressed. 
So they see that as a better way because they're able to freeze people in these columns and then use them against each other and with the idea that they can't possibly move through them because the the trait that they've decided to isolate and call a problem between each other is immutable, at least in today's world. And so that's wrong, of course. That's not the way America worked. It's not the way America has been working for decades. We've been making huge progress in that. However, over the last probably five to seven years, especially, we've seen people pulled back to where they're thinking, you know, it's 1951 in, in a small town in Mississippi in terms of what are race relations, that no progress has been made and nothing's been done. Now we want reparations. Well, reparations are always popular with people that are getting them. I mean, who doesn't want to get some money from somebody? Uh, you know, especially if it's for something that you have nothing to do with personally. It's just something that happened a long time ago, perhaps to someone. And how do we decide on these reparations? I mean, we can spend a whole show talking about that. But that's just another cudgel, see. They want to get people all excited about reparations because they know that sensible people will never agree to that because it doesn't make any sense. And you couldn't possibly afford it, and it makes no sense. And the application of it would require dividing people up in ways that would cause huge problems. So they just want to get people excited about it and let sensible people on the conservative side especially, have to be the ones to talk against it because they know they'll speak against it. Sometimes it feels like the best thing to do would be to say, all right, go ahead. Because people on the left don't really want that, not the people behind these things. They know they can't afford it. They know it can't be done. They know it would be a terrible thing for everybody and would tear groups that are even saying they want these things apart, trying to decide who gets it, when, What's the criteria? How do you go back to somebody like, you know, Barack Obama, who's, who's, you know, has a white family and uh, his father is from Africa, but there was no slavery in his, does he get it? Does somebody who can trace himself back to his great, great grandfather being a slave? I mean, this is, you can imagine what would happen. So they don't really want it. They just want to get people excited about it and then stand back and let the other side fight it so that they can point at them again and say, see, this is your oppression. So tides of history are interesting to see, and we're in the midst of them now. What we have to do is keep our senses about us and really study what they're doing and see it from a tactical standpoint, not just a gut-feeling political standpoint. Try and study it that way. We'll be back next week.